Hi, I'm Tracy Koga, and thanks for downloading this podcast from ilikehugh.com. If you can, give us a follow or subscribe. And remember that all the information about the guests in today's episode can be found at ilikehugh.com. Now, let's get started. everyone, I'm Tracy Koga and welcome to Hugh at Home. Well, it is the start of another school year. Kids are back, wearing masks, and teachers need to be double vaxxed. But there still is a lot of uncertainty. So we're going to start off with a brand new series, The Hugh Chat Room, where we invite certain guests to talk about some very heavy topics. In this show, we'll be talking about Bill 64, but also the curriculum and teachers. What is their future? So please welcome John Weens. He is a former Dean of Education from the University of Manitoba and an education advocate, as well as Linda Baxter, former principal and education advocate, and Judyanne Dama. She's an educator. They all have their own opinions and fears about what Bill 64 could still hold. Well, I want to give a very warm welcome to John and Linda, our very first Hugh chat room. So it's a little bit of a different format. So, John, I am going to talk to you first a little bit about our topic. And, of course, it's Bill 64. And uh, with everything that's happened now, with our premier stepping down, uh, uh, like an interim premier coming forward, and, you know, very bold statements on a lot of things, um, my question to you right now, is Bill 64 really gone? Well, I, I don't think so. <laughs> first, first of all, I, I think that that Bill 64 <clears throat> was uh, just in the background of the what we would call the best document or the Better Education Starts Today document. And it was that that was the implementation of Bill 64, and that was proceeding and may still be proceeding at a particular kind of rate in spite of the fact that Bill 64 is gone. Now, parts of Bill 64, of course, uh, and parts of BEST will be gone simply because if it's not in the legislation, then there will be no elimination of school boards uh, at the present time. There's no amalgamations, uh, those kinds of things. But as far as the other kinds of things, the consultations, uh, the committees that were set up, the various kinds of task forces and stuff, there's actually nothing preventing them from, from going ahead. Uh, so, the, so the concern still uh, exists. We had, a, we had a bill which represents the government's thinking on a particular kind of notion of schooling and, and education. But, in fact, the best document uh, outlines pretty clearly how they wanted to proceed with that. And, and then uh, after Cliff Cullen announced that Bill 64 was dead and, you know, his first announcement after Bill 64 was, was killed by Gertzen, um, he suggested that, well, they weren't really done with education yet. 
Okay, so if they're really not done with education yet, it means that they, I, I think we can interpret that to mean that they haven't given up their agenda. And their agenda has very little to do with education. So <laughs> there's, there's a problem. If they talk about uh, doing things for children, but in fact, there's really actually nothing in either one of the documents, I think, that addresses, you know, uh, the major educational issue in regards to uh, children's education. So. That sounds really dangerous. And then what does that mean, too, to marginalized communities, indigenous and newcomers in this bill? Yeah, I, I think it actually is all, when you, when you talk about marginalized, I think I would include poor kids of every kind. The, the biggest issue is, the biggest, single biggest educational issue is poverty, and it's family poverty. And there's such a strong correlation, and it, it, it seems to be that the government avoids, they're not the first government to do this, so, you know, this isn't a necessarily a partisan statement, but what, what they're doing is avoiding talking about what the real issues are in regard to educational mm -hmm. success of children. And the real issues are is that we have children who start out indigenous uh, children, uh, newcomer children, uh, other other children in poverty. At birth, they basically are at the same point as as children that are in middle class and doing well and so on and and come from stable homes and and so on. Not to suggest that some of the poor homes aren't stable, <laughs> because they are. But the, they start out at the same point, but by the time they uh, come to school, they've lost a lot of ground. Uh, and they've lost a lot of ground partly because they, uh, their parents are unable to provide the kind of environment that middle class and, and more wealthy uh, people can provide for their children, whether it comes to reading books, whether it comes to experiences like Manitoba Theatre for Young People, whether it comes to uh, you know a whole variety of things, even even things that some of us take for granted now, we take our grandkids camping every year, right? Well, these are things that poor kids don't experience, um, and they often experience what I would say. Uh, what we don't talk about very much is that we actually force many poor children into adult roles far before they should be in them. Mm -hmm. You know. Uh, for for example, 43% of the people who use the uh, the uh, food bank, the Manitoba Har Harvest Manitoba now, are children. You know, uh, children should not be out scrounging for food. Mm -hmm. They should not be out scrounging, bringing food home for the family. They should not be out uh, looking for clothing and whatever else for their siblings. You know, they should be children. <laughs> they should be allowed to to you know, not worry about things like where the next meal is coming from, or not worry about the fact that they don't have uh, you know decent shoes if it's raining or if it's snowing, or they don't have clothes for those kind. Kids should not have to worry about those kinds of things, and this is a solvable problem. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's and I, I think that's the biggest disappointment here is that we all actually know that this is the biggest educational problem there is. Mm -hmm. So we actually talk about kids not in terms in terms of those kids in terms of 
kids needing certain kinds of things so that they'll do it well at school or so that they'll actually have good life experiences and stuff like this. We talk about them as test scores. We talk about them as future workers. We talk about them as <coughs> science, technology, and mathematics people, you know, because that's the future. I mean, this this is a this is a narrow future mm -hmm. for kids, and and actually to predetermine kids' future in those kinds of way or or, or kind of pre-assign roles to children uh, is really problematic. And it really does avoid, you know, it steps around the real issue. Yeah. Well, I'm going to bring Linda in here into the conversation. So now we've tackled or we're talking now about poverty being probably the number one uh, culprit. Uh, I want to ask a question to both of you now. Instead of an administrative and looking at like politics and power, what would we look at if we were looking at the curriculum? And what needs to be changed? And what would you like to see changed? Linda, do you want to go first? I don't. I don't mind. But oh. <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, I think in terms of the curriculum, uh, I, th I think first of all, I'd like to have an expanded notion of what curriculum is, <laughs> because because curriculum, in fact, is the relationship between the teacher and the children. Mm -hmm. uh, it's the uh, discussion that teachers have with children about what it means to be a good person and what it means to be a good member of the community and stuff like this. So I think I'd, let, I'd want a recognition and acknowledgement that curriculum is more than these documents, you know, and it's more than kind of just downloading information and, and, and stuff like this. It's, it's the whole experience of children in school. Now, part of the problem in, in this document is that it, it does mention, uh, you know, first of all, in terms of newcomer education, the only thing it mentions is English language, <laughs> English as a second, as an additional language. Uh, that's a huge problem. Like, I mean, it's, it's not the only issue. And for some immigrant children and newcomer children, it's not the major issue by far. I mean, if, they're, if they've spent the first... 12, 13, 5, 6, whatever years in a refugee camp, uh, there's a lot of other stuff going on uh, that needs to be attended to, and that should be part of the school curriculum. Mm -hmm. And it, it actually isn't covered under kind of mental health issues and stuff like this, though, though that's probably an important uh, aspect of what we need to think about. Now, the other thing is that the suggestion, at least if, the way I read it, and I, I'm quite critical, of course, the way I read it is that it it's almost suggests like indigenous education or indigenous knowledge is only actually uh, meant for indigenous kids, <laughs> you know, and it really needs to be the approach. Really needs to be is that this is everybody's business, right? This is we should all know. All our children should know. We should know the history. We should know. I mean, we can't possibly capture all the cultural nuances and so on, but we should know that there are people who actually approach and see the world differently than than the mainstream of people. And 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 the curriculum doesn't do a really good job of that. And certainly, these documents don't even acknowledge that that is true. Mm -hmm. So I'm just going to stop there. I'd like to hear from. <laughs> <you>. <laughs> 
I'm probably not quite as eloquent, but I can't agree with you more, John. The the, the whole notion that um, that the curriculum piece is the um, the notion of how kids interact with one another, um, what their what all of their backgrounds might be, an understanding of people. Um, you know, you talked earlier about kids coming to kindergarten from um, poverty situations, and they come with such an ex experiential deficit. Um, some of their parents have. Uh, sometimes that's multi-generational. Their parents have come from experiential deficits too. And there really needs to be a huge piece of school that um, gives kids information about each other, um, whether it's their cultures, whether it's their, their home lives, whether it's how different people operate, um, whether it's what futures there might be out there um, in terms of what they might dream about after school and as adults um, and, and ties that together and, and teaches kids a little bit about all the variations and then how to, uh, how to respect them in one another and how to uh, work together and enjoy one another. Um, it's a huge piece. If, uh, if you end up compartmentalizing, if you will, kids, um, the, the conflict that comes of it um, is just it, it just multiplies and you you'll find that you have teachers that spend more time dealing with um, anger and, and discipline kinds of things and really if if all of those pieces are in place and you start to deal with the the humanity of the kids and, and tie what their own experiences are to the experiences of others and to the world around them um, uh, you find that you've You've eliminated all the time wasted with the with some of the um, nastiness that goes on between kids and some of the discipline issues too. Really oh. important. So obviously, yeah, but, yeah. Go ahead, John. I want to add one more thing. I think if you take a critical look at what's happening here, and you have some historical knowledge about what's happened in other places that have tried to do what these people, are, what the government's suggesting under Bill sixty four. What you see is a, a privatization or a and a commodification of education. By privatization, I mean this, even, even, even by saying that every parent would have a say in what goes on in the curriculum and stuff like this, uh, suggests that they're actually, their, own in, their only interest, quite frankly, is their own child. And this is not true at all. Like uh, the, the purpose of public schools is in fact to create a sense of the public sense of that we're all in this together that what uh, what actually hurts one person hurts everybody uh, what's good for one person might be good for everybody else uh, and what we're trying to do is actually with public schools is we're trying to form a sense of community uh, of diverse community right a, a, a community that recognizes the difference that exist differences that exist uh in between and across peoples and and as linda said really values that and and you know uh and says this is really an enriching part of part of my life right instead of as this document suggests actually because if we bill going back to bill 64 one part of bill 64 said that everybody will be held accountable for following the curriculum, except for homeschoolers, 
and private schools. Okay. Now, if you if you read between the lines, I think the private schools couldn't escape that uh, very easily. But homeschoolers can escape this easily. They already are avoiding this, you know, to a huge extent, right? And and what they're doing is hiving themselves off from the rest of the children and the rest of the people, as if. Uh, we just assume not live with those people in some kind of relationship, right? Or we're better off not living with those people in some kind of relationship, or it's actually harmful to us to live in, a, in, in with those people in some kind of relationship to, to some things we believe. And we're actually seeing, you know, if I extrapolate a little bit, we're, we're seeing the consequences of that uh, in those places that have large numbers of homeschoolers. And by that, I mean in, in the Steinbach community and in the Winker community, we're seeing all the non-vaxxers who in the name of freedom are suggesting, of course, that you know their private wills and wants and whims and stuff like that actually supersede the interests of the society or the group, if you want. So. Oh, and well, thank you. And then I just want to welcome Julianne. Oh, yay! Julianne, Hi, meet, yeah, meet John and and Linda. So we're right in the thick of things. Uh, Bill sixty four definitely not gone. Um, talking about poverty being number one, that's not been addressed. And right now, uh, we're talking about curriculum and how it should change. Uh, John just commented on the homeschoolers that are getting away with it. <laughs> well, I shouldn't say getting away with it, but, <laughs> um, you know, they are, they are exempt from this bill, as are private schools. But private schools definitely have a harder time. Um, so you can jump in. It's the first day of back to school. or And how was it? <laughs> Uh, it was it went well. Um, like uh, we were actually talking today about how like we don't know what we don't know, mm -hmm. right? So there there's a lot of confusion, um, and we're just kind of learning to be okay with the confusion. Um, mm -hmm. Like we just need to be able to move forward with with the students that we have in front of us. Like I am a little more removed from the classroom with my role, mm -hmm. um, but even in our support roles, um, we are really looking at you know what what's the best way that we can support our learners because that's our number one, mm -hmm. um, but also the staff. Uh, yes. Because we need the staff to be well and yeah. our administrators to be well, um, so we're kind of uh, kind of regearing for the, for this year. We don't know what that's going to look like for the whole year, uh, <laughs> but we've been flexible since yeah. since March of uh, 2020, and um, it just continues. Just being very flexible to what um, what people need and meeting them where they're at is really the the key focus that we have right now. Oh, I know. I mean, definitely interesting times. So that leads me to because you're. Judyanne, you just mentioned staff, teachers. So the students, number one, but then maybe possibly the teachers. So where do they all sit? Like, well, we had um, we had Nathan Martindale from Manitoba Teachers Society on, and we def and he definitely gave a very succinct uh, view of where the teachers stand and all of the evidence to prove it. So what happens to the teachers now? Uh, you know, maybe we'll start with you, Judyanne. I know. What right. supports? Um, yeah, so right now, um, just like between my colleagues who I, who I keep in touch with, uh, who mm -hmm. are in classrooms, um, there's, of course, a lot of anxiety. Um, I think we, we all feel a little bit more 
a little bit better with with the news about having certain divisions having the mask mandates mm-hmm. um just feeling a little more comfortable with that but there is still a lot of anxiety for sure and it's we're all very nervous about the uncertain right things that we can't plan for um like we can be as prepared as we can be uh, but there are definitely going to be things that are thrown in that um we aren't that we aren't prepared for mm-hmm. but we're going to do our best to just pivot and and to um to be able to adjust in our practice because um, in, in a regular school year, you'd have to adjust every year to your students, but this time it's just kind of adjusting every few months, every few weeks, just depending on the situation. Um, I, yeah, there's just been a lot of anxiety for, for the staff that I've been talking to, that I've been reaching out, mm-hmm. um, but we're kind of doing our best to talk through it and, and just reminding them that, you know, we got through it last year with all the changes. We got through it the year before that, um, and we're just going to continue to be, to be resp- like just respond to whatever changes are coming our way. Wow. Linda, you have a daughter that's also a teacher. Uh, I do. I mean, what are, what are today's teachers? That's a loaded uh-huh. question. Uh-huh. <laughs> what are today's teachers? Whoa. <laughs> They're multitaskers. Um, but I think, uh, I think, again, fundamentally, they are people who are concerned about their students. Um, they are taking their students on a path. Certainly the, the, the more traditional viewpoint of curriculum where you're looking at content and material, they are taking their, their students down a, a path of discovery to do that. But I think they, they aren't successful very long if they don't um, realize that they have to know who their students are as people mm-hmm. and be there and develop relationships such that um, the kids will trust them Mm-hmm. And kids will make a, make them aware of what's going on in in their lives and in their heads and what the stresses are that they're facing because kids are feeling really stressed about this. Mm-hmm. Um, I read some of the feedback and and uh, my daughter is teaching high school. Um, I I read some of the feedback she got from her students at the end of June, and the common theme was, "Thank you for being there when I was." losing it. Thank you for listening to me and being someone that I knew I could go to when I was finding things overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, one gave her a box of Kleenex with little notes all around it to, to thank her for all of the Kleenex that Shannon had supplied for her. <laughs> through the um, Aww, no. Profound things about how kids were feeling and you, you got the impression that And uh, you really saw how important um, teachers are as people Mm -hmm. um, and how important it is that they connect with with students. Um, And I think I think that was part of my concern with with Bill 64 too. my own experience and my experience Mm -hmm. watching her, too, um, was that, you know, kids she dealt with, certainly the students were very happy to have her there and some of the, and I know she had relationships with parents as well, um, to connect as human beings and connect one another as human beings. Mm-hmm. I, I know she and her colleagues felt good about the support she got within her school and she certainly felt within her division as well. Mm-hmm. I know as well she was very respectful of the fact that there were things going on in other divisions and in a, in a former life John and I represented two different school divisions. And sometimes we did things a little differently. Um, 
sometimes we, when we did, wondered what was going on, we compared notes and got ideas from one another. Mm-hmm. And yet we could go back and figure out how to implement them with the populations that we were dealing with. And I think that's really important to, to teachers. Um, some, of my, uh, some of my work when I did my master's, um, I looked at the fact that I was using a lot of American research in terms of implementing um, practices in schools. And yet I went to a conference in the US and I ended up in a session talking to people and talking about implementation and it ended up where the speaker stopped and asked me to speak about it because we were doing much more in terms of the implementation mm-hmm. than they were. And my, in reflecting on it, my impression was that we were, I was at the time in a small school in a, 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 in a community that was overseen by a, a division who, when I said, help I uh, there's something special going on here that needs to be attended to they knew enough about my situation that they were there to help me um, I wasn't looking at a school of uh, 5,000 kids um, in a division that was citywide that didn't have that personal piece and the more I think about it it's the personal the ability to zero in on the personal pieces and 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 again teach the kinds of connections we talked about before and get those going as John and I did years back talking about what happened in opposite sides of the city. Um, those are the things that drive successful education and make the other things work. Yeah. And I, I think that was the big, you've got me going about the, the big concern I had about Bill 64 is that it seemed to be focused on moving in exactly the opposite direction And to me, that's a a recipe for concern. No doubt. John, so you've been listening intently now. Uh, So I'm gathering from what uh, Linda has said in your past experiences, and and Judy Ann was nodding her head, can we not still why Bill 64 isn't here and we're we're not governed by one school of thought? Cannot the divisions now make a difference, do some changes, implement some programs, have discussions with other school divisions and move things forward, you know, and, and, and address things like poverty, the mental health issues, the curriculum, the things that need to be taught and learned. Is that yeah, possible? I, yeah, if, if I might. I, first of all, I want to add something to what uh, Judy Ann and Linda said. First of all, yeah. teachers are representatives of, the, uh, representatives of the society, and they know that that's their role. They, you know, and and teachers, my ki- our kids are both teachers, by the way. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, you know, they they understand clearly that what they're doing when they get in front of a classroom is that they're representing the society, and the public, and their province, and and whatever else, right? And 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 so. When the minister at one point suggested to teachers, well, this should be no concern of yours, right? Because you have a job to do as teachers, right? That as, as if teachers live in some kind of bubble which is removed from the real world. And I think that's simply not true. And it's, you know, uh, and, and it's really problematic. Now, let me address the, the question you asked, mm-hmm. though. I, I think that's exactly what school divisions do do. They, yes. and, and they they share notes across all the time 
they did that before. When, when we did a study on poverty for the Social Planning Council and we interviewed superintendents, we, they had 99 different poverty reduction strategies that they were using in their school divisions, wow. right? And those, those things go all the way from providing lunches for kids to doing it very quietly so that the kid doesn't lose any dignity, you know, in the process kind of thing. To, to bigger issues like no school fees, to other issues like uh, we'll minimize fundraising. You know, you there are school divisions have what they simply need. If, if I was going to say something, what the province could do here, they would simply say, would you tell us what resources you need to mitigate the problems of poor children coming to school? Like what kind of resources do you need? Because I'll tell you what, poverty is not a local issue maybe on one hand. On the other hand, the only responses that seem to work are local responses. You know, the responses that actually take place where children are, right? And as Linda and Julianne said, if you know the children, you know what, what that something's going on here, right? And you know, our teachers are pretty astute about this. They know that something's going on. Uh, if a, ch a child is angry or they're not participating or a variety of other kinds of behaviors, which actually don't go along with children in general, but maybe particularly a child in a particular situation, they keep an eye out for it. There, there are frontline people when it comes to child exploitation. There are frontline people when it comes to virtually everything has to do with children outside the home. You know, they, those, and they keep an eye on, on, on that stuff. So I would, I would simply say is that people really misjudged, the, the, the government really misjudged teachers when they thought they would get into some kind of competition, you know, and, and put out all these amazing ideas and the government would fund them and they'd look like, you know, a sugar daddy kind of giving giving money out to these deserving teachers who put in projects and stuff like this. Well, the fact is that teachers have been doing that forever, as Linda suggested. When something needs to be looked after, they either go to their principal or they go to their colleagues and say, well, what do you guys think about this? Like, uh, here's something I think would be a good answer to this. And and so often, that's why there are 99 different answers to some of this stuff. <laughs> and there's probably as many as there are children, on the other hand. But, uh, you know, uh, the fact is that teachers actually do uh, bring these things to the table. And they do get responded to most of the time if there are resources to respond to them. Uh -huh. But that is a major issue. And that, of course, is one of the major issues with this government because what they're doing is starving education. Yeah, wow. So we are kind of running short of time. So I'm just going to ask all of you round table. Um, what can we do? I mean, and, and as citizens, and what should we be aware of? You know, even though I, my kids are older, they're not in, in school anymore. And, and why should I care? And we had that conversation because it does affect us. It, it certainly does. These are our future, our future leaders that are going to run the country, so to speak. So, Judy Ann. 
Yeah, I think um, this past, with, with the announcement of that, like Bill 64, at least for the time being, uh, in what it was is like a scrapped. Um, I think that was just a solid example of what happens when we take action. Yeah. Um, like we've we've really advocated for it. Like um, part of the Bill 64 that really bothered me too was a, the idea of um, like having certain topics that are too sensitive. Yeah. Uh, but the reality of it is when those the bodies were found in Kamloops, students came to me crying and asking what that's about and why. Mm -hmm. And how do you not answer that question? And do you want them to just go on Facebook and find the answer? Of yeah. course, you need to address it. They're upset, they're distressed. You're not gonna let a student suffer um, and, and just agonize over this thing when you can easily address it, right? So with um, with Bill 64 being scrapped, um, now we're showing students that we when you do take action, like there are like, positive consequences to that um, when you band together as a community. So I think it just continuing to be um, aware of what is the what the changes are Mm -hmm. um, being informed about it and then making your decision and, and, you know, taking that action because we saw it with this. There's a lot of other fields that could also use that type of action. You know, you're thinking, I'm right now I'm thinking about the nurses mm -hmm. um, and, and them not having a contract breaks my heart. My mother's a nurse. Um, so, yeah, so just as a community, what can we do to band together? This is a time that our, our students are actually seeing results mm -hmm. from taking action. So that, that's my advice is just to continue doing what you can um, to advocate for what's right. Yeah. Thanks, Judy-Ann. Linda? Oh, yeah, I, I think it's really important that the conversation continue at this point. Um, I think uh, we do have to keep asking questions. Um, uh, parents need to keep asking questions. But I think one of the things that got left out a little bit in the, in the Bill 64 conversation was that parents have, have hired, if you will, a strong contingent of resources. They are teachers and administrators and support workers. Well, we're all teachers. And they have, uh, they have spent years working on uh, a huge bank of knowledge that should be brought to the fore. I think it's important to get conversations going, but include those experts. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I really do fear, as, as Joan says, that education has been um, starved. I, I'm, I'm realistic enough to know that there are not unlimited dollars. Um, but maybe it is time to get people together to say, okay, how can we use our dollars better or differently? What can, can you see any place where we could save some dollars and then put them here? Um, but do it in an honest fashion. Don't say we're going to save $40 million getting rid of trustees, because I thought mass for 36 years in one way shape or form <laughs> and i couldn't make those numbers work no <laughs> um and i i think uh, and i was around long enough to to really feel pretty strongly that this was the second crack at just taking a, a financial hit at education by a conservative government and that disturbed <laughs> me a fair bit and that's another, okay. that could be another whole program oh maybe um, maybe but um <laughs> But I think the conversation does have to go on. Uh, the government does have to come to some agreement about what are the needs and then how are those funded? How can, it's their responsibility to fund them as, as judiciously as they can, but not just arbitrarily say, okay, you're gonna get along with better because we're gonna quit paying you as to, quit your pay increases. We're going to give you another 
herd of kids, and, and there are many parallels to the nursing situation. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think we need to, to speak up and advocate for the humanity part of what frontline workers do, be they teachers, be they nurses, be they a, a whole host of other things, and make sure that um, we're not trying to balance a budget by pulling the rug out from any of them. And I think right. there can be honest conversations. Yeah. And I know that um, uh, school divisions get together and compare notes. There yeah. may be there may be some economies of scale that could be found if you mm -hmm. put the heads that are working with those things together yep. and uh, got some conversations going. John. But yeah, I would just say, make sure that you support teachers and support their right to have a voice and, and speak out on things, uh, you know, that they have a right to bargain in, in a fair kind of way. We'd want this for everybody, but, uh, but you know, these people have made a huge investment uh, in, in uh, their work. They are hugely invested in their work. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Julianne will tell you that she lies awake at night. She'll lie awake tonight wondering how she could get to that one kid who she didn't get to yesterday. And, you know, and, and stuff like this. Uh, people are hugely... Uh, I, I think that part of it is try to imagine what what the people in the system are feeling mm -hmm. at certain times, you know, like I'm, I'm speaking to a CUPE group in a couple of days. Uh, and, and CUPE was also worried about bill 64 because secretaries, trustees, I mean, uh, mm -hmm. bus drivers, you know, uh, EAs, others were under attack. I mean, they're, they're simply being attacked the same way as everybody else. And it's part of this kind of destruction of the public agenda, if you want. Well, well, you know what, I want to thank all of you for again joining. And you know what, obviously this is not the end of the conversation. You know, I, I see that we can come back here a month from now and, and hopefully things have changed for the better or not. But you're right, you know, we give this platform for people to speak. And thank you so much, Linda, Judianne, John, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Tracy. Thank you. Good meeting you two again. Good, Linda. Yeah. And yes, Julianne, thank you, all the best thank tomorrow. Thank you, for all the advocacy you. you've been doing. That's been great and very much appreciated. Yeah, thank you. Welcome back to Hugh at Home. Coming up next, we're going to meet singer-songwriter Nikki Kennedy, and she has traveled thousands of miles away from home to get her music education here in Canada. And let's just say the choice was right, because she is the full deal. 
Welcome, Nikki Kennedy, to Hugh at Home. It is so nice to have you, and it's all about music. And, you know, for the last, well, almost two years now, it's been crazy, especially for musicians like yourself, uh, going virtual, no shows, uh, but chance to do an awful lot of writing. <laughs> Am I correct, Nikki? My goodness, yes. <laughs> Uh, and, but for yourself, though, your own personal journey, uh, born in New Zealand, and how did your family and you come to Canada? So, fun fact, my family is actually still in New Zealand. It's just me <laughs> here in Canada. Um, but uh, I came for college, so um, when I was 16, I got accepted into Randolph College in Toronto for performing arts. and. I had a lot more courage, I think, probably as a teenager than I might have like now, but uh, I decided to go for it. And thankfully, I have a really supportive family who wow. felt like I should take the opportunity and pursue my dreams. And yeah, so I moved to Canada by myself. <laughs> That's a big step. And why Canada? Why Toronto and that particular university? Um, so what I loved about that program was it was a condensed like full-time non-stop program so there were no breaks no summers off and it really like mm. it appealed to that sense of like that's what life is like and that's what the industry is like and like let's just do it and like go full force also the program was uh balanced in terms of uh singing and performance and acting and dancing as well and i really felt like if i was going to have a career in the arts i needed a solid foundation of all three um, so it just felt right. And, uh, I have family, like, um, my grandfather was born in Canada. Uh, he passed a long time ago, but it, it enabled me to sort of like have that connection and really want to, to move here. So. Oh, well, we are so fortunate to have you. So let's now talk about your music. Uh, you did a pretty intensive uh, workshop with A1 Ryan Tedder, and maybe <laughs> some people might, uh, uh, think that name sounds familiar? Well, he just happens to be One Republic and like an international world-renowned producer. So let's talk a little bit about that whole experience. Yeah, so I think, you know, one of the beautiful things that came out of the pandemic was that every everybody in the music industry was looking at different ways to, to connect with people mm -hmm. and to make a living and all that kind of thing. And uh, I'm not sure, I can't speak for Ryan, but I'm not sure if that program would have happened if the pandemic hadn't happened. Um, but basically he did a monthly course and opened it up to anyone in the world that wanted to spend 30 days of their life um, watching him work and then also uh, writing and producing three songs from start to finish. And I had had a year of pandemic writing, feeling a little bit sorry for myself and wanting to like break out of my own sort of habits and ruts and, you know, just like mm -hmm. try something new and, and challenge myself. So I figured, why not? This is my only opportunity to to try and, you know, see how um, someone of Ryan's caliber works. And it was one of the best decisions I made. Really? Sure. Wow. Yeah. Uh, what is it like? because that's really pretty concentrated, 30 days and three songs yeah. from start to finish. Yeah, it was um, a lot. <laughs> yeah. What did you, what did you gain or, or now that you've done the workshops, does this make it easier to do the writing and to do the producing? Yeah, I think what's interesting is it's changed the way that I approach what I do. And I think the coolest thing about that program when it's moving so quickly and there's like deadlines and you're trying to keep up and you're trying to figure it all out is that you don't have that chance to uh, second guess yourself or get into like 
perfectionist mode or be overly critical of what you're doing because you just have to, you just got to get it in. So you just do it. And then in your head the whole time, you're like, oh, I can go back and finish this later or fix it later. Um, but I think there's something beautiful about not like to go with your gut on some of those creative choices. Mm -hmm. And I, to be honest, that song the, from the demo I created back in January to the full production now, not a lot changed in terms of its uh, melody and, and lyric cool content so I think that's kind of a really cool thing and so now I'm I'm not perfect but I'm trying to not censor myself and I'm trying to trust my own ears and judgment more and more yeah as I create I know and I and I think just getting your song out and the more you do it then the less uh, being the perfectionist and no 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 I got to keep it you know it's still still yeah. you know not ready um did Ryan get to critique at all not for me personally. So he would he would choose like random um, people's work over the course of the 30 day program to mm -hmm. give feedback and things like that. But we were put into peer groups. So we actually were getting constant feedback from uh, people all around the world cool. at different stages in their career. Yeah, it was really awesome. A really, really, really cool experience. Well, let's hope that he does it or, you know, maybe maybe Drake or whoever might decide to do something like that. But Keep him coming. Yeah, I know. But it's such a wonderful opportunity for artists like you to really have some solid, uh, you know, uh, words of wisdom and, you know, just people with more experience. And um, yeah. so this new album and the new song, Fall Back Into You, the story behind that. So I love this because it's it's not it doesn't come out of a specific circumstance or situation. Uh, and I think a, a lot of my work in the past has been that it's been stories, um, whereas this was the very first song I wrote in that class. And the challenge was to start with a vibe. Mm -hmm. And that's typically and traditionally not how I write music. <laughs> so I was like, what? I don't know. Um, but it's an interesting thing because we connect with music on like this physical and emotional level. Mm -hmm. And I think once I had the, the first four chords of the chorus and it set the tone, it was just like, I could feel it. And I just kind of let it happen and let it flow from there. And just exploring like what, what it looks like to, to have that, gut feeling and that reaction to something and how that makes us feel and then to have a story build from there I think is just a cool thing and I think it allows people to take what they need from it as well without me controlling the narrative and being too specific about an exact story that happened in my life. Mm -hmm. Well and that is yeah that, that can get away from you too exactly you know making us think exactly what you want us to think and even like the technical part of the song it was interesting um, you did soundscaping and kind of layering of your own vocals to make it sound like it's a huge chorus behind yeah. you. And I was thinking, wow, that's really, you know, how smart, because how expensive would it be to get a full it 50, 50 voice choir? I would love to it. say that I could do that, but I think that's, a, yeah, it was a little out of reach. <laughs> I'm, I'm super lucky. I work with uh, Shane Stevenson at Listening Party Recordings, and I always say he's very good at taking all of my crazy ideas and my like wires that I just have in my brain and somehow making sense of that and bringing my vision to life he's awesome at doing that and this was one of those projects that we really got to explore what does it look like to take visual ideas 
mm-hmm. and make them sonic. And I think that's like part of the reason I love this song so much is because I just know the little details that went into it and and the images that went alongside it. And I think it's it's the first time that I've really allowed myself to pull in those uh, influences, especially like cross genre wise, like I was saying this the other day, but like, for example, someone like Nine Inch Nails, which is like not at all like a comparative artist in terms of what I, I do, but it's such a huge influence in that sort of layering and soundscaping and, and that mm-hmm. kind of idea. And I think it's, it's a wonderful thing to have somebody that believes in your vision and then that you also trust to, to bring that to life. Oh, yeah, no doubt. And you had mentioned before uh, the reason of going to um, Toronto at this particular university is that it, it made you all round or full rounded. So acting and dance, how much has that kind of added to what you're doing now? I think so. I spent a lot of my early years, like post graduation, working heavily in musical theater and things like that and telling other people's stories. Um, I also worked in a lot of cover bands and like I was always performing, but always embracing other people's stories and other people's work. And it's only been in the last few years that I've, I guess, trusted that I have something to say and maybe people want to hear my music, like what I write. Um, and I think all of that training is, is, is sort of given me that, that, you know, the whole idea of like all experience lead up to one moment in time. And like, that's kind of where I feel like I'm at right now. And even though, you know, especially virtually, it's not like I'm sitting dancing in front of my screen all the time, but it's like just all of those elements, I think, allow us to hear and feel and interpret things in different ways. And I like to think that that's something that's explored in my music or something that I at least think about in my music. And my last single was um, something that was like built out of a love for dancing in the living room <laughs> like every night sort of thing you know like that feeling again I always like talk about music like it has having like either a physical emotional or like mental reaction mm-hmm. and either physical and emotional going hand in hand for me it's like I want to feel a song every time I I um, listen to it so I think you know having had that experience and really like connecting with what I can do as a performer, regardless of how it's used, hopefully one day on stages around the world. But <laughs> right oh. now, at least I think it, it, it helps my approach to, to what I do. No. And yes, now we're in the world of virtual and music on Spotify. And, you know, the game has changed. Definitely the business and getting yourself out there it can be done on your own, but through an awful lot of work. Yeah. And, but I think deep down, I think for every artist, it's the live connection. Am I wrong? That is the best no, thing. No, I don't think you're wrong. Right. <laughs> it is the best thing. It's hard, to, it's hard to beat. And I think the last, well, yeah, like you said, I guess we're, we're really hitting that 18-month mark right now, um, which is kind of scary. But um, I think that's sort of been the challenge over the last little bit is is adapting to that and finding new ways to connect with community and and be able to share music and and give people that sense of comfort and and what is a very strange time to be alive. Mm -hmm, No doubt. Well, Nikki, we love this, you know, short time to chat. And I know for sure that you will be traveling and touring and 
again, please make a stop in Winnipeg <laughs> because we really want to come out and see you live. But in the meantime, uh, you will leave us with the song, right? I will, yeah, absolutely. So what will you play for us? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to perform for you my latest single, Fall Back Into You. Yay. Thank you. 
want to give a very special thank you to all of our guests on today's show and leave you with this question. What would you like to see changed in your school curriculum and why? We want to know, so send us an email to hello at ilikeyou.com or you can message us on Facebook and Instagram at ilikeyou. But for now, once again, stay safe and healthy and we'll see you next time on Hue at Home. Listening. This has been a production of iLikeQ.com. Podcast distribution from the Sound Off Media Company. I'm Jeff Woods and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people. He, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have faults. He had the same amount of faults as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from JeffWoodsRadio.com. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.